okay. Why don't we open up? We'll, we'll all wait for them to come in, but meanwhile, we're, we're starting with uh, with uh, Vayikra Leviticus uh, 16, um, and focusing on the end of the chapter. Verse 29. So here, uh, okay. Hi. Right. Hello, everybody. No problem. Okay. Hi. How are you doing? Okay, so we'll begin. Um, okay, good morning. Uh, I'm John. I just introduced myself. John Kelson. Uh, I teach here at Trisha. Um, I was interested in exploring with you all for the next few weeks the holiday of Kipper and specifically the Inuyin, the um, practices of self-denial or afflictions, um, some maybe asceticism of Yom Kippur, and asking uh, what those are about. What I mean by what those are about are um, primarily what are they designed to achieve, right? What is the desired effect of these things and why are we doing it? Why would you fast Yom Kippur? What's the connection between kapara, between atonement or repentance, um, between purification on hand and um, the apparent vehicle, perhaps, we could assume, of fasting um, and the other afflictions that we know of in the Rinic tradition um, of Yom Kippur. So what I want to do to, over the course of the next few weeks is both uh, explore the biblical rabbinic backdrop for these practices, um, explore, uh, no problem, um, explore the, sort of the contours, what are they, you know, contours, and a little bit about uh, their halakhic resonance, and then really get into, uh, as well, some of the framings, some of the various takes on what they're about, what they're designed to achieve, some of other people, some of my own, and see if that's, uh, if that helps uh, change our own experience of the day, you know, in about, I don't know, about 30 days, an hour, a little more, like 35 days, and we'll see, maybe we'll be in touch after and see if that actually affected that process before, and then after, I've had students right back. You know, how did that affect my, my day? And people have written some interesting things, I think, sometimes um, about uh, how that uh, learning can be translated to a different experience in your kid. So that's sort of my, my goal um, uh, here. here. So if we can open up. We have a microphone with enough, or if you don't, just kind of okay. Thank uh, And we're going to do it right now for the next little while. Sure. The next little while, we're going to be doing a bunch of flipping back and forth with the Tanakh, so you have to have your fingers ready. Uh, fingers ready to do that, but we'll start. Um, on page uh, 246, on page 246, which is in uh, Vayikra Perak uh, 16, Leviticus 16, which is in the Parshat Acharei Very interesting uh, chapter, uh, detailing heavily the what we call the the Avodah, right, the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur. We're not going to be focusing on that uh, in this Shior series, although there is a Shior being offered, I believe, on Tuesday nights uh, on exactly that topic, really getting into, by Ethan Rodman, really getting into the Avodah, decoding it, etc., if you're interested in that topic. But we're, gonna, we're not going to be focusing on that right now. We're rather we're going to be focusing on the end of the chapter, on page 246, starting with verse 29, where the Torah says, that this shall be olam, this shall be a law for you unto all time, that on the seventh month, the tenth day of the month, ta'anu ad nafshotechem. 
תענו על אשותיכם, וכל מלאכה לא תעשו, הגר, הזרח והגר, הגר בתוככם, כי ביום הזה יכפר עליכם, היי, לטהר אתכם, מכל חטאתיכם, לפני אדוני תתארו, versus perhaps familiar to us in the liturgy, שבת שלטון היא לכם, ועיניתם את נפשותיכם, חוקת עולם. So this idea of תענו את נפשותיכם, בכל מלאכה לא תעשו. What do you mean by תענו את נפשותיכם? The root of, is written on the board, the root of אינוי. Uh, what we're going to do in just a few moments, like I said, is to sort of look in various places in Tanakh and try to figure out, well, within biblical Hebrew, within the biblical canon at least, what does that, what does that mean? Okay, if you've been attending our silver shearing for the past many years, you may have heard this idea of, you know, this word being repeated many times in the context of Enoi, Abduit, and Geirut, um, the covenantal triad, um, but we'll look for other places as well. Um, but anyway, in this context, Ta'anu'at nashotechem v'chomolacha lo ta'asu, and then again in verse 31, Shabbat Shabbatoni lechem v'initavat nashotechem. So what do we mean by Ta'anu'at nashotechem? You shall inure your, you shall inure your, nef, your nifashot v'initavat nashotechem. What does that mean exactly? So we have here in the JPS, how do they translate Inui? Or Ta'anu v'initam? Yeah, you shall practice self-denial. So they, that, that's all within the, within the verb ta'anu or the initem. You shall practice self-denial. Right? The practice is implied in the, in the imperative. The initem ta'anu ad nashu techem. So um, um, what, they're, what they're noting, first of all, is they're looking at inoy as language not of affliction per se, but of self-denial. Okay, denying oneself. So the self part, by the way, comes from which word? Nashu techem, of course. Nashu techem. So you shall deny yourself. The practice part is very interesting. We're going to come back to that later on today in about 40, well, about 60 minutes, I'd say. Um, this note, because what they're, con- they're conjuring the verb in the positive. That's to say, you shall do something. Rather than you shall refrain from, you shall do in the positive sense. What's interesting about Yom Kippur is that of the Inuyim that we know of, like halakhically, um, traditionally, classically, that they're predominantly uh, ne- negative um, commandments to say, do not do. Right? They are shaved al say, you shall not eat, drink, annoy yourself, wash yourself, engage in married relationships, you know, wear leather shoes, etc. Rather than you shall proactively, kumba say, you shall proactively engage. So what I want to claim later on today is that um, there's actually a bit of a hedge in the tradition. Right? Halakhically or customarily, you know, um, within the general tradition, there, the primary thrust is indeed negative or refraining. You shall, you know, deny but it's heads, even in the translation here, you shall practice self-denial. As you see, there's like a, you shall, you shall do a not do, right? You shall asay a lota asay. And I think that um, even in the, you'll see in the, in the customs of the Jewish people, um, I'll show you later on some less well-known customs from various, you know, uh, areas of um, provenance, you know, Jewish uh, living, Turkey, etc. Uh, some practices which like really sit on the fence between negative and positive, between kumba ase and sheva alta ase, between doing and not doing, um, in terms of inoy, and we'll just explore what that's about. But I want to know right away that the, the reason JPS, I imagine, says you shall practice self-denial because it says the initem. It doesn't say you shall not do. It's, it's conjugated. So you shall proactively do a not doing, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, it's, and it's worth noting in that context, perhaps, the juxtaposition of Inoy over here, right, with, how about in you know, the first verse, verse 29? Uh, you shall not do, you shan't do, any malacha, any creative labor, I'm not sure what they say here, probably any work, right? No manner, no manner of work. Um, 
So that clearly is conjugated in the Lotase. It's understood in the Lotase manner as well. You should not do Shabbat Shabbaton is a little more complicated. In verse uh, 31, Shabbat Shabbaton Lechem, it shall be, how do they have it? A Sabbath of complete rest. That's, that's very cute. A Sabbath of complete rest for you. A Sabbath of Sabbath. The quintessential Sabbath. The Shabbos of Shabbat, Shabbat Shabbaton. That's already more complicated because when you say it shall be a complete rest, once again, you're hedging. Resting is we apparently something you don't do. Think about the first resting, right? Shabbat Shabbat that God does not do. Um, on the other hand, it sounds like, you know, it's a proactive not doing as you were. And indeed, in the rabbinic tradition, let's say Nachmanides, for example, if you recall, but even earlier than Nachmanides, um, there's a sense that Shabbaton is actually a mitzvah say, if you will, a positive commandment. You may know this from Nachmanides, excuse me, jurisprudence, where he claims that uh, the idea of something uh, keeping something as Shabbos stick, right? That things doing things which are not Shabbos stick, right, is actually a problem biblically, right? because the idea of Shabbaton is don't do malacha, but also keep it Shabbos stick, as we would say in uh, Yiddish, you know, in English or whatever, right? In other words, also you know have a day which is imbued positively with the spirit, and he also does there talk about you know. He says, he says, you know, for example, on Shabbos, for example, if uh, you didn't do any malacha, but you also somehow with the interstices of the law, if you within your house, you know, move the couch up and down the stairs, you know, there's no, none of the malachot, right, uh, would catch that activity. It wouldn't be violated, it's not a violation, you're not sewing, you're not carrying outside, etc., but it still would be a problem with Shabbat, Shabbat Tov. But it gives you the sense that one has to sort of uh, create po- positively a Shabbat environment, again, by not doing certain things. Right? So it's, it's always, it's always, a my mind is called, you have to have a, you have a Shvitah Nikaret, you have to have a recognizable Shvitah. So that's in terms of Shabbat, the seventh day. My point here is that Shabbat Shabbaton, what do you mean by Yom Kippur being a Shabbat Shabbaton? I'm harping on this for a couple, two reasons. One is that the juxtaposition, I think, may be instructed, may not be instructed, that's up to the reader to decide. Right? Do we assume that just like, you know, Malacha is negative, so too any ten is negative? Is don't do, do we not make that assumption? Maybe one is negative, one is positive. But also because the rabbis will, when they're trying to decode or to source the inuri and the practices of these self-denial, so they, they make a big deal about the juxtaposition between malacha and inuri. And we can, we, we, in Rabbi Salvechik, and the Briscoe tradition has a lot to say about that, and we can come back to that in, in, a, in a little bit. So I just want to point out again as we, we move from this passage that, um, that uh, the is left undefined in the passage, but it is conjugated in the positive, and yet already you get the sense that it's a positive not doing, and that's kind of kind of interesting. And a juxtaposition with malacha, shabbat, shabbaton, um, etc. I do want to, before we move on, actually one note is that this nashotechem, they have here yourself. That's very interesting. What do you mean by nefesh? What does nefesh mean? Um, in these contexts. So, nefesh um, in Tanakh can mean different things. I'm not going to right now whether it means soul versus body. And did a biblical, does a biblical text yield a notion of a soul which is distinct from, its, from the body? Okay? Um, certainly Chazal speak many times of a soul which is distinct from the body, and as you probably know, um, I don't know if it's preponderance or almost universal or some, you know, of academic scholarship claims that that's an anachronism and actually for biblical, uh, for biblical theology there's no distinction between soul in the platonic sense, the soul which is sort of imbued into a corporeal form, to a body. 
more complicated than that. It's a more of a monistic sense of the individual rather than a dualistic sense of the individual. They were actually unified more. Pardon me. And it's a Hellenistic or maybe a Zoroastrian, or maybe that you know, you know, imbuing or uh, sort of uh, infiltration, if you want to use a certain type of language. Okay, I'm, I'm leaving that alone for now. But I just want to point out that um, does nef- nefesh can mean different things. Um, even after that question, for example, and just to show you what I'm trying to say, if you keep your uh, you can keep your fingers here, you know, a lot of flippings, you have to like sort of like pianist, you know, has to stretch your fingers. Right? So if you just take a look um, uh, at the beginning of Vayikra, Kiadamho is a great one. Kiadamho and so I wasn't gonna look at that one, but let's let's start mentioning right, the the blood prohibition, the portion of eating the blood. The series says Kiadamho hanafesh because blood is the nafesh. And what do you mean by who hanafesh? So, does that mean that the blood is, is the life force, as it's often translated? That that's, does it mean that the Dhamma is essentially the whole person, the whole, the whole, the whole entity? Does it mean it's the soul? What does that mean? If you look, for example, um, at the beginning of, uh, of Leviticus, chapter 2, it's page 208. So right now we're looking at the word nefesh. We're analyzing the the philological range, the semantic range of the term nefesh. And you look at nefesh ki takriv. Everyone have it? 208, page 208. It's in the beginning of Leviticus when we're talking about the sacrifices. So just an example. The nefesh ki takriv karban mincha ladunai. When a nefesh will bring a karban mincha lashem to God, it shall be as follows. So nefesh there, JPS says, when a person will bring. Chazal do talk about the word nefesh in a different sense. Um, but it does seem, you know, fair to say that it's not, first of all, it's probably not embodied soul, which is bringing this carbon. That'd be hard to imagine. It'd probably be something along the lines of when an individual, right? When an individual brings this carbon, um, maybe it's maybe it's Chazal habit, maybe it's the the nefesh um, um, in the sense of a certain type of individual, or it's a person bringing it from their inner state. Okay, that's already Chazal's reading, but there it seems to mean person, um, but. Um, if you look at a, a, a different example, which I think is rather rather instructive, if you look at Proverbs 27, ready, right? Proverbs 27, Mishlei, which you can find. You can find it on. Thank you, 1646, the chapter and 27:7. Here you have the nefesh being hungry, which is interesting. Nefesh seveya tavus nofet. Nefesh reiva komar matok. So here you have a... Uh, which verse are you saying? Verse 7? 27.7 in Proverbs? Proverbs? A sated person disdains honey. I'm reading JPS, obviously. But to a hungry man... It's interesting that the translation... Right? Anything bitter seems sweet. They're just translating person, person and man differently for the sake of the parallelism, I, I imagine. They don't have the same word twice. But um, here you have the nefesh being, being hungry. Right Now, again, it's obviously not a soul, one imagines, unless you use it metaphorically. Um, but you do have the sense that uh, it's referring uh, to some, some sort of embodied person. And here you see the nefesh as something which can experience the, the sensation um, of hunger. Um, at other times, however, let me just find the correct verse. Hmm. 
One moment, sorry. Yeah. What do you think it means there? Right, so there it seems to be not even people per se, right? But rather, right? Um, I have to probably, I'm not following it, finding it right now, but there are other verses which speak um, of the, the nephesh in the sense of, it uh, sounds like, you know, uh, the, the gullet, or it sounds like the throat, right? Somebody speaking to Helium of the waters reaching ad nephesh, the waters reaching until. Thank you. So, um, I'm just not finding it right now, but um, those verses sound like nephesh means like the water came up until my throat, right? Up until my mess. It sounds like. Now, you, you understand how the semantic range, they all link, because if we breathe, right? If we can't, we can't breathe anymore, then like, you know, my whole self is going to be drowning because it's reaching into my nephesh, to the place where I breathe, where the air is, right? Where God breathed the original breath into, etc. You can see how all these meanings sort of coincide or come from a common, uh, can somehow be related to a common source. Um, but the point being that in our, ver- in our verse, right, does it mean, you know, you shall enjoy your whole self? Does it mean that you shall enjoy um, your throat? The reason, the reason I go back to that is because we do know that the primary afflictions are eating and drinking. Thou shalt not eat, you know, no eating and no drinking, which, you know, happens through the throat. Um, maybe that's somewhere in there. We'll see that in Chazal, at least in one drasha, um, the notion of uh, nefesh seems to be taken as the whole self, right? Something with the whole self and, and the whole self which is able to, to exist, to live. And therefore, when we say, you shall enoy your nefesh, or that one who doesn't do enoy the nefesh, I will make that nefesh be destroyed, it seems to imply something, some sort of restriction which affects the very life force, if you will, right? the very, the very uh, um, um, vibrancy of this entity we call a person. What is that? Eating and drinking, for example. Okay? So, which again are clearly, halakhically, the primary prohibitions, um, uh, even though there are, more, there are more on the list. So, I just that's a, that's a brief, tiny, brief you know, footnote excursion into the term nefesh, in only three or four places, five places in Tanakh, but hopefully enough to demonstrate that it can carry different connotations, or maybe denotations is a better term, denotations in various contexts, all of which, of course, relate one to another, but in terms of fine-tuning our reading, uh, leaves things a little bit ambiguous. Uh, in terms of the word, you know, we need to have et nashotiche, but the inor, which we're about to get to, we haven't yet decoded. So that's what we're about to do after Suri uh, raises, raises her point. Remind me, though, after we look into Enoi, to, remind, to, to note that here Enoi is, is the, the object of the Enoi is Nefesh. Okay, so we're going to look at some places where Enoi appears alone, that root appears alone, not, not with, you know, the word Nefesh, not as the object, but here it's with Nefesh. Ibn Ezra makes the claim, I'll just sort of like give you the end of the, the beginning, Ibn Ezra claims that whatever Enoi can mean in various contexts, when you have Enoi with Nefesh, when the thing that you're Enoiing is Nefesh, that's, that's a fast. Ibn Ezra makes it clear. Ibn Ezra says, look, I flipped through Tanakh, basically didn't say this, but that's what he means. He says, I, I went through all the places. Basically, when you have Enoi with Nefesh, that already equals a fast. It's important to recognize that because nowhere in Tanakh explicitly does it say that Yom Kippur, you are to fast. It says, you shall Enoi your Nefesh. If that is the sense, if the reader were supposed to know that means fast, then it's explicit, if you will, right? It's black letter law. It's actually right, right there. Um, otherwise, it is a halachic midrash, which may be the original ten, but not anyway decodable 
from you know biblical uh, well, biblical lexicon. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So Hebrew word is ta'anit. Interesting. Yom Kippur is often called um, the tzom. It's a different word already. Tzadi above men. Um, and, and that's interesting. Actually, in, in Second Temple sources, sometimes they call Yom Kippur, by the way, hot tzom. Right? The fast. It's like Yoma, the Masechet Yoma, but Yom Kippur, Yoma is Aramaic for Hayom, the day. Right? Which we have in our liturgy. Hayom, 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 Hayom. The day. It is the day of the year. Um, it is the quintessential fast of the year. There are other fasts, but this is the fast. So already in second, second Temple sources, um, I, I think that for today we won't get into that, but I do have my computer right here, like a source. If you're interested, like after, like, you know, in a 15 minute break, I'm happy to show you some sources from, you know, Josephus and Philo and, and various second and, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. There are sources which indicate, right, they're calling it the fast, right? Um, Philo actually has a whole excursion about this, what the point of the fast is. He already did this. Philo of Alexandria uh, has a whole essay, as is his want sometimes, right? What is the point of this fast? Because even those are not usually, sounds familiar, even those are not usually, you know, so uh, careful about such things, are fasting on this day, what's it about, etc. So, anyway, yeah, so it's a good point. Hani does Lashama Inoy as well, I imagine, yeah. So that's a very good point. It could be their lives, because either one dies, the other going to die, but it's not physical. Yeah. Right, it's, some, it's something about mm-hmm. their very life vibrancy. Right, right. So yeah, you see, I, I, I think it's a very good point. Right? This, this, that, that goes to the issue which we're not really dealing with, but it's a very good point, which is like, what does soul mean in that context? Does it mean, is it, is it something, is it something separate in the body, or is it, is it just all one human who has both this and also vibrancy and it's all part of one thing? Yeah. Is there any like real showrish of the word nefesh, like when you know the word neshama and the showrish of the word neshama is shown? Is like what is the ikar name? I don't know what the ikar is, but I think. Yeah, sorry. I don't know what the ikar is per se, and I don't know if an Akkadian means this or that or the other. Yeah. But but I think that uh, but uh, uh, to me it's very instructive that there are verses that the waters reached ad nefesh. To me, that's a very powerful verse because right. there. I don't know about the ikar, but that's an embodied use of the word nefesh there. So whether or not, you know, soul comes from throat, or throat comes from soul, which I doubt, or they both come from a common, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's an association, if not a causation, if you will, right? Okay, let's think for a second. So where does Enoi appear in the places in Tanakh? And I want to try to, I have a list here of uh, some places in Tanakh, which, they appear a lot of places, obviously, but uh, some various places, which I think some would, not so much are maybe instructive, um, um, for our topic, which is you know the use of that term vis-a-vis ta'anu et nashotechem. By the way, I didn't uh, share this, but we looked at Vayikra 17 just for the sake of time. But it also we also talk about Yom Kippur in two other places in Kumash in Vayikra 23. You'll see it there as well, um, and also in uh, in Numbers in the Book of Numbers in chapter uh, 28 in Parshat Pinchas. Um, you see there uh, when they're talking about the holidays. It talks about the, it talks about uh, the same uh, commandment um, there as well. Um, it talks about the same commandment there as well. It's actually an interesting Ibn Ezra. While we're talking about Ibn Ezra, it does say uh, in one of those locations that uh, one who uh, the one who does not tune, one who does not do inui um, on this day will be uh, will be cut off. 
and he makes the claim that the language of te'uneh, which is not, you know, it's sort of, uh, which is not uh, made to, sounds like it's made to, made to do inoi, rather than sort of the uh, PL, I suppose, or the, you know, the call of like, you know, you should you know, do it yourself. He makes it that that already that, that that indicates that others are sort of trying to sort of supposed to impose the inoi on someone. If they're not doing it themselves, then maybe the, the grammar, right? Then what it indicates, the conjugation indicates that others are to unet, so like sort of force the inoi. That's not halakhically necessarily so, but that's Ibn Ezra's read of the In any event, it appears in three places basically in Khumash, we looked at one because it's a specific time, but you know, if we were learning every day, then we would Okay, so Enoi, so what places, where do you, just off the bat, can you think of any places where this uh, root of Enoi appears? Let's start, with, let's start with Chumash. Where does Enoi appear in Chumash? Yeah. Rape of Dina, so is a, unfortunately, a uh, instructive one, a tragic case. So this is in Genesis 34 too. In Genesis 34, as you may remember, the, the B'nai Yaakov, the B'nai Israel, are living uh, near Shechem, they have camped near Shechem on page seventy in your in your chumash in here. And Dina is raped by Tetzay Dina but Leah. Dina goes out, uh, daughter of Leah, to Yaakov. So Jacob goes out to visit Leropenot Aris. I'm just reading the JPS for that right now. And Shechem, the son of Chamor, the the Chivi, chief of the country, sees her, takes her. She's, of course, the object of all these verbs in this context. She's not an agent. That's the part of the tragedy. Takes her Neha. And he enoids. He enoids her. So here it seems to be rape. Okay, and Chazal talks about the difference between, you know, but it certainly seems to be some sort of affliction, some sort of rape. Um, and it's worth noting, perhaps, that you know this is rape, but it is in the, it is in the sexual context. Um, and I note that because lahavdil, don't please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But um, sexual relations are one of the prohibitions on Yom Kippur, Tashmisha Mita. So I don't mean to associate, of course, rape with uh, marital relations uh, beyond that general association but it's worth noting that in this context Enoi is something done from one person to another person by the way right uh, not to oneself but that's what and not what you mean to yourself but if we've done to another person as well and has here it's in the sexual context of, of rape specifically um, by Sarah as well um, yeah Rishit uh, well, I think you mean if you, mean, if you look at uh uh, Genesis, uh, two more times in Genesis, Genesis 15, 13. And this is in the context of the, uh, the covenant, the Greek being in the covenant of the pieces. And here you have Rabbi Silber's triad of Geirut, Avdut, and Inoi, of strangerhood, of exile, of service, and of Inoi, uh, again, of affliction, perhaps. Here they have a press in the JPS and says to Abraham, Know that your children, your descendants, will be Geirim, or be, will be a stranger in a land not theirs. They shall be enslaved. And here they have an oppressed. They will be oppressed. Not, by the way, denied. <laughs> As we have in another context, the JPS is determining then. Leviticus, we don't mean you shall oppress yourself, but rather you shall deny yourself. Okay, so that's a reasonable 
translation, but a tra- interpretation nonetheless. Um, we have it there. And also we have it further in Genesis, in chapter Zion, chapter 16, verse 6. And this is probably what you were referring to, yeah. right? That um, when Sarai um, has no children and Hagar is given to, to Abraham uh, as a concubine, she bears a child. Sarai is Hamasi uh, Alecha, berates Abraham, a very interesting story. I believe that Wendy was just teaching yesterday uh, about uh, retrieving Ishmael. If you, weren't, if you weren't there, the recording, I believe, will be online and you should come next week. She's excellent. Um, we read in Rosh Hashanah, but in any event, uh, says uh, Abram to Sarah, you know what? Uh, Here's your maidservant in your hands. Do with her as you see fit. And Sarai annoys her. Again, one person doing it to another person. And Sarai here, so look what they have here in JPS, treated her harshly. Different translation in three places so far. I'm not critiquing JPS, I'm just noting. Um, treated her harshly. Now, what it, how so? Did she deny her food and water and anointing? I don't, I, I don't know. Did she beat her? Did she beat her? Did she berate her emotionally, psychologically, verbally? Did, I don't know. Right? It's not entirely clear um, what happens here. Whatever it is not good, obviously. What's that? And then the angel tells her to go back and hit Right, and you should. And that's a really good point because the hit ani. So that sounds like the reflexive, right? And you shall, like your bank around, you shall allow yourself to be annoyed, right? You shall, you shall annoy yourself under her, right? What do we mean by that? Like, continue to be. That's right. It's like have a continuous experience um, of the of the annoy, um under under her hands. Um, not, not entirely clear, but the reflection is very important because so far we've seen examples in Genesis where Enoi is done from one person to another. And I remind you, right, uh, that the imit of Nashotichem, Ta'anu, and Nashotichem, something that you do to yourself. It's reflexive, so apparently Enoi can be done to oneself. So what we're doing right now is basically, you know, we're just walking in Ibn Ezra's footsteps, we're walking in any biblical scholar's footsteps. We're just looking, the first thing you do is look in Tanakh and see what, it, what the range of meanings can be in, in biblical Hebrew. Okay. Um, by the way, the, not for now, but do note that if we were learning the Ishmael story, we would note how Enoi puns off of the notion of Ma'ayan, right? Off of the word, the similar, what's phonetically similar notion of the springs. Sometimes we find Enoi and springs juxtaposed, and there may be something there within those stories. I have a theory about that, about, but, but, not, but, not, but not for now, but just if you want to talk about it after, something like that. Okay? Let, let's just carry on. I want to make some, cover some ground here. The next famous one is probably in Egypt. In the beginning of Exodus, it's, right, I mean, it's a fulfillment of the of the covenant, of the tragic part of the covenant, or the difficult part of the covenant, which is that we know that the Egyptians um, are annoying the Israelites. I'm on page 113, uh, the very first chapter of Exodus. Habanitchakmalo, uh, right? Let's uh, let us devise a ruse and essentially they eventually um, uh, set taskmasters verse 11 taskmasters over the Israelites the Egyptians do Lama'an anoto b'sivlotam to annoy him b'sivlotam now here they have to oppress them with forced labor 
verse 12, However, the more they ya'anud them, the more that they oppressed them, uh, so too uh, the more they increased and spread out. So in this context, uh, what does the Enoi mean exactly? Well, it's not entirely clear. Maybe, maybe Laman Anotabasivotam, maybe Enoi means that is we had you engage in forced labor. Or maybe what it means is we had you experience a sense of affliction via the Sivotam. Right? In a sense of via the forced, the forced labor. Um, or if maybe not experience sense of affliction, but rather achieve a state of affliction, right? To not interiorize the experience, but you should be inward. But again, something one person to another. Here, I'll note it's not. While this point doesn't have anything about you know something something explicit about uh, sort of a sexual context, we do know in five seconds there will be, of course, right? Um, the the um, the inoy, uh related to the birth of children. Um, and as Chazal have it, the like separation of the husbands and the wives. This is this is why um, um, Moshe's father, Ayelas Ishlevi, that the people had separated, and maybe Chazal in part are getting this from the Inoy, right? That we see happening, uh, sort of a cessation of of uh, loving marital relations. So while this verse is not sexual per se, no do I no do I know again it's about eating and drinking or whatnot. Right, but it does seem to have some. It does some. It, it's in the general context where sexual, you know, oppression does appear in fighting a little bit, but also, you know, it does have to do with, with labor, with work, etc. So these verses, I think, are interesting, and uh, but uh, it's not clear that if I only had these verses, I would necessarily arrive at, you know, one may not, you know, the first Mishnah of the eighth parak of, of Yuma, of the eighth, eighth chapter of. of Kippur Masachet, you know, eating, drinking, anointing, bathing, etc. Let's look at some other verses um, going further. Um, I will not, by the way, I don't want to look at it right now, but maybe jot down to yourself that in terms of Enoi with Nefesh, where actually I'm not so sure it means fasting, but maybe it does, number 3014, uh, that's in the passage about oaths, oaths um, that when a woman takes an oath, her husband has the ability to be made fair, be neder, to annul the vow. So she says, V'chol shuat isar, any neder or any shuat isar, any binding oath, la'anot nafesh, to right, afflict her soul, to inor the nefesh. That's in place, it's a very important verse on the one hand, because it has inor and nefesh together. It doesn't help what that is. So Chazal will talk about this, but... Um, we do see there that Latin note nafesh. We do see this notion that someone can apparently do inoy to oneself, and there it's with Latin note nafesh that oneself is via, via the nafesh. Um, let's take a look. What time is it? Ten thirteen. Okay. So now I want to start looking at Hillel. Take a look at the. I just need a Tanakh over here. Um, let's take a look at a few other places where maybe uh, it'll be. Uh, more, I'll point more towards our definition of Yom Kippur. Um, for example, take a look at Ezra 8.21. Book of Ezra 8.21. Now we're going to be really flipping back and forth. And the book of Ezra, chapter 8, which is uh, page 18.52. And Ezra is assembling everybody, all the people. 
And he says that Ekra Sham, verse 21, page 1852, Ezra says, I Ekra Sham Som Alhana Ahava, Lehit Anot of Nea Lohenu, He says, I'm, procl- I'm reading a JNJPS. I proclaim the fast there by the Abba River, Lehit Anot to afflict ourselves, they have here, to afflict ourselves before our God. Um, etc. because he wants protection etc. So here this is very important because here we have a, a, explicitly a fast right a fast which is proclaimed lehitanot the reflexive something you do to oneself lehitanot lefneelohenu in order to hitanot ourselves in order to achieve in order to vis-a-vis ourselves in order to afflict ourselves so this is an indication that at least sometimes here we don't have the word nefesh, of course, but nonetheless. Here we have at least sometimes the notion that when you do Inuit to yourself, what you're, you're doing, uh, that's associated at least, at least with it. So, with the fast. Well, that's very, that's very interesting. Um, we have this as well. In, in, uh, and here you don't have to turn it, just, I'll just use to write it down for the sake of time. In Psalms 35, 13, Psalms Lamed Hay, it's a very important psalm for our purposes. Ani bachalotam levushi sak. As for me, when they were sick, levushi sack, my clothing was sackcloth. That's already very interesting as well, right? This notion of like, now we have other things that one does, right? You're wearing sackcloth, etc. Initi vatsom nafshi. I initi vatsom nafshi. So I initi my soul, my nefesh, I afflicted my nefesh, batsom. Batsom. Vaya, with a fast. Ah, very interesting. Now also sackcloth. We don't have sackcloth per se in Yom Kippur. We do have don't wear sandals, don't wear leather clothes. So, okay, getting interesting. We also know on other fast days, right, one proclaims a fast for repentance or whatnot. One wears sackcloth, right, and one puts ashes on their heads in other contexts. And, you know, think of the Megillah and other places, and that's, that's already interesting as well. Um, here's a really, a really good one. If you look at the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel, chapter ten. And I must say that one of the benefits of doing these exercises is you read books you wouldn't normally look at in this little canon of ours. Um, in the Book of Daniel, chapter ten, where finds the page. That's Psalms thirty-five. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. So, page 18, 29. Thank you. So, in the book of Daniel, chapter 10. So, we say in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, an oracle is revealed to Daniel. And the oracle is true, but it's hard to understand it. Uh, and then it came through vision. Okay. So, it seems like. But for whatever reason, maybe Daniel's trying to decode the vision, but it says in verse 2, so in those days, Daniel is speaking, I need Daniel, I was mitabel, I was, right, uh, reflexively engaged in avelut, okay, we'll call that morning for now, and D as the JPS calls it. I'm on page 1829, 1829 on the top, okay, verse, verse 2. On those days, I, Daniel, was a mitabel for three weeks, shavuim yamim, and during those three weeks, 
I ate no tasty food. Lechem chamudot lo achati. Basar vayayin lo valpi. I ate no wine nor meat. Soch lo sachti. I did not anoint myself. Until the end of that period. And why is this verse so important for us? Because later on, in the same chapter, in verse 12, Daniel sees a vision. And someone is speaking to him and this person says to Daniel in verse 12 Al-Tira Daniel don't, do not fear Daniel because from the first day the first day I gave to you to set to your mind to get understanding and to reflexively engage in Enoi uh, they have here to practice abstinence. Every case in JPS, every case is different, right? Practice abstinence. Why do they have? Why are they translating it here as practice abstinence? Because of the verses we just read above in verse uh, in verses two and three, where what he does is engage in self denial, as we say elsewhere, right? To not do certain things. In other words, he no, not read here as afflict yourself, not to oppress yourself, but to not do certain things. Um, and says, so therefore, your words have been heard, etc. Come to you because of your prayer, and we go on in the book of Daniel in that context. For our purposes, I think there's two fascinating things. One, the list of behaviors which he's not engaged with are starting to ping our like spider radar to uh, our practices of Yom Kippur and to you know what we one place which codified is in the first mission of the eighth chapter of Yoma. Uh, Yom Kippur Masur Be Yom Kippur is forbidden in Achila Shtia Sicha Rechitza Sicha eating, drinking, bathing, anointing, Tashmisha Mita Nila Sandal and wearing shoes and uh, leather shoes or leather sandals and sexual relations. So here we have eating, drinking, and Sicha here as well. The Gemara, by the way, cites this verse when they want to know how do I know that Sicha, how do I know that anointing is considered Enoi? So the Gemara cites this verse, not surprisingly. So one thing that's interesting is the, um, I should say, convergence of these various denials within one passage. The second thing I want to say, what I think is interesting, at least for me, <laughs> is that these things are considered him being mit abel, him reflexively engaging in ave lut. Um, that's interesting because uh, what we'll get to, I hope, is uh, the the fact which people probably either know very consciously or just sort of like right, right below the surface of consciousness which is that the practices of Yom Kippur look a lot like the practices of Avelut the, the, not, the, the things which one does not do on Yom Kippur to a certain extent not entirely of course and that's very important but to a certain extent sound like or are reminiscent of some of the things we do not engage with in Avelut those are, for example, the bathing and the anointing and the leather shoes and sexual relationships. Now, eating and drinking is not there. At least not eating and drinking entirely. Now, why that is, is very interesting. Is that because you couldn't go seven days of Abilut without eating and drinking? Is that because eating and drinking is not germane? The prohibition thereof is not germane to Avelut in the same way. Okay. Associatively, of course, is a third of the triad, which is uh, fasces and, let's say, Tishabav. The activities prohibited in, on, for an Avel, says the, says the tenetic source, are the things that prohibited for Tishabav. 
again, eating, drinking, washing, anointing, anointing leather shoes, sexual relationships. Now, for an Avel, also can learn Torah. In Tisha B'Av also we can learn Torah. Because Torah gladdens the heart, etc. Torah, as you see how happy you all are, right? The Torah gladdens, gladdens the soul. And in Kippur, there's no such prohibition. Now, why is that exactly? What I'm, what, what I'm cutting at, if you're, think, if you're with me, what I'm cutting at is the question of to what extent is Yom Kippur a day marked by Avilut as opposed to a day not marked by Avilut? Is Yom Kippur a day of mourning in any sense? Well, there are indications both ways. On the one hand, you're, you know, if uh, to an outside observer, you would say, I don't know, because you guys are in mourning. Right? You're not eating, you're not drinking, you're, you're not taking care of your body hygienically, and you're, you're not wearing you know, nor, normal, comfortable clothes, shoes. Um, while we're at it, you, you seem to be beating your breast, you seem to be you know, tense and anxious and based on your crying. And you can see, right? You're moaning. Right? Sounds like you're kind of mourning or over something or other. On the other hand, I say, but I could learn Torah all night. Right? Indeed, that I'm referring to the custom of some to stay up all night and learn Torah. Um, I can learn Torah all night, and beyond learning Torah all night, there are other indications that uh, there's no prohibition of Simcha on Yom Kippur, actually, Lahafach. Au contraire, actually. There may actually be some sort of mitzvah of Simcha associated with Yom Kippur. It is, after all, in some sources called a Yom Tov. Other sources is called not a Yom Tov. So we'll come to this, but. It's a, it's, it's a very, I mean, to me, it's a very fascinating kind of puzzle, which is not just an academic puzzle about is it a day of joy, not a day of joy, but actually it's a day which I think a lot of people are kind of confused about, the truth is, right? What is this day about? Right? Are we mourning? So, anyway, my point is that here, Davi, uh, Daniel is mitabel, is mourning, engaging in mourning practices, which, of course, look like empty poor practices because the same practices which are forbidden on some of the same practices which were forbidden in Kippur are forbidden for a mourner as well. Um, and on Tisha B'Av as well. Uh, but it's not clear there, that that therefore translates into Kippur being a day of mourning per se. And there is there's literature on this, so it's not coming from nowhere. Let's look at um, another case where we have some more of the associated practices. Again, in context, in this, um, this is the penultimate source we'll look at for now, in the second book of Samuel, in Shmuel Bet, chapter 12. So if I look at, does anyone happen to know after flipping what's happening in there? That's exactly right, Siri, right? So, good be key use. Who calls it that? Calls it anticipatory avilut. That's super interesting. Let's see, I, know, I never heard that phrase, and I, and I, I thank you for sharing that. There's a whole lecture about it. So I'll have to get a hold of that lecture. So in this context, thank you very much, Right, there's a child, um, this is the passage about Sheva, about Sheba and David, or page 667. That's at least the beginning of the page, we're going to turn the page in a moment. But, um, <clears throat> right, the child that Uriah's wife, that is Bathsheba, has uh, born, becomes ill, and David is, is distraught. And David asks God, uh, prays to God on behalf of the child. And in verse 16, David fasts. David fasted. 
and he sleeps on the ground. You know the customs on Tisha B'Av, and you know also for Yom, for for not for, for Avi Lut that we that we turn over the bed. Whether we do this in practice or not is a different question. But the, the Talmud speaks of one of the practices of turning over the bed uh, when one is Avi Lut, and the Talmud speaks of that as being a, uh, uh, an overturning. Right? You've overturned yourself, and your your life purpose, and I'm overturning you as well. You're overturning your bed as well. But anyway, he turns over the bed, he sleeps on the ground. People come to uh, console him, but he will not partake of food with them. They're afraid to tell him that the child has died. However, um, David says um, to them in verse 19, is the child dead? And they say yes. And look what it says. Look what it, says. it says in verse 20 that David, at that point, the second he the child is dead, so at that point, right, exactly, he's finished his shiva, as it were, right? By Yakam David Meharis, David gets up on the ground, he bathes, he anoints, he changes his clothes. Remember, also, he hasn't been eating, right? So he comes to the house of the Lord and he prostrates himself, and then he goes home and asks for food, and they bring him lechem, they bring to him lechem in biblical Hebrew can mean both bread and also food more broadly, so let's call it food for now. And they bring him food. Um, and uh, indeed, his servants say to him, what's going on here? How come when the child was uh, alive, you fasted and wept, and now you're eating? And he answers that as he answers, right, with a sense of, as you know from the story, uh, while he's alive, I was praying and hoping, and now that he's gone, he's gone. And that's relevant to the story there. For our purposes, uh, for our purposes um, you see here... Um, um, you see here David engaging in, again, we'll, we'll use Rabbi Flato's uh, language of anticipatory mourning, but look at the convergence of these various practices. His mourning has no fast, fasting, and apparently, by contrast with verse 20, what he does do now, apparently he was not doing before, is to say, not only not eating, but also not bathing and not uh, anointing himself with oils, etc., or perfumes, or perhaps... Uh, apparently he was not changing his clothing. So these already sound... It's not, uh, but the, the activity, when he says that the Lord may have pity on me, maybe that's not a good translation, but so it seems like more petition than... Than mourning per se. Morning. Yeah, so it doesn't say here that he's mourning per se. I think what Rafael is probably noticing is that these are some of the practices we know of as Mihuge Yavelut, the practices of mourning, and I imagine he's in, interpreting and saying, ah, oh, so it looks like he's sitting Shiva before. It's true, it doesn't actually say by Itabel David or something along those lines over here. That's very true. And maybe therefore you would say that he's actually engaging in the same petition. Right? And maybe that's already more Yom Kippur dip. Maybe he's actually engaging in the day of Tshuva, Chatakil Hashem, etc. It's, very, it's hard to know because the practices converge as they do here. By the way, that doesn't say that he's not sleeping with any of his wives, but I imagine he's not sleeping with anybody. It doesn't seem like he's. It wouldn't it would be very surprising if in the context of these passages he's sleeping, sleeping with women, right? I uh, sleeping on the ground after all, sleeping alone. What's that? No, I mean, it does say that probably not going to go certainly with her, he yeah, was sleeping. Yeah. So, when there are other wives who know, I don't know, but I, I'd be shocked if in this passage, based on, I don't know, this is very surprising to me. But, in any event, so we see in these passages, I think we're, we're, getting, we're making some progress here. We're seeing, it doesn't, we've seen practices where, you know, Enoi is associated with fasting. Um, uh, Enoi is associated, especially when you Enoi yourself, 
right? He's not known as associated with not anointing. That was in the book of uh, the book of Daniel, and in the book of uh, of Samuel, we see David. He's not annoying himself, but he is doing a bunch of things which we know come together in practices of both Avilut and Tishabab associatively and Yom Kippur. Um, I'll say one final source. I said that was the penultimate source. One final source, and then we will transition our, our shear here. Um, and that is a verse which the Bavli, uh, the Gemara, um, maybe even earlier, I forget right now, but I think actually earlier sources as well, really jump on to explain what Enoi means by Yom Kippur. We actually had this not so many weeks ago in the Parsha Shavuah. Where does Enoi appear in the book of Deuteronomy? Anybody? The term Enoi. The, the root, I should say. The root Enoi. Wait, anyone have a sense where it might appear? I'll give, I'll give you a hint if you're thinking. I think about thinking. Think about, think about, about food. Food, lack of food. That's a very good point. So part of Kitava, right, it'll say that, uh, you know... Uh, we all know it by heart, right? And they afflicted them there. That is very true, actually. Thank you. Also, I'll, I'll just note uh, that in, in chapter 8, by the man, it appears. It's very interesting. Isn't that kind of weird? In chapter, I'm reading page 392, page 393 in your GPS. Isn't this kind of interesting? I always, I've always found this to be a... Something about the man, I've always found very interesting. Um... Remember the way which God has taken you. I'm in verse 2, reading on to verse 3, but I'm on page now, 393, which God has taken you these 40 years in the desert. And the very, you know, in verse 2, Laman an anosecha, in order to inure you, has JPS have it? By hardship. Lanasosecha, to test you. So JPS has it, to test you via hardships, you know, to test you by hardships to know, will you keep my mitzvot or not, my commandments or not. And again, verse 3, Vaya'ancha, Vaya'rivecha, Vaya'achilcha tamana shelo yadata, Velo yodda'un avotecha, etc., etc. He subjected you, I'm reading JPS, He subjected you to the hardship of hunger, and then gave you mana to eat, which neither you nor your fathers had ever known in order to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but that man may live on anything that the Lord decrees now this is super interesting what does that mean? he, he enoyed you and starved you and fed you the man what is pshat? what's pshat in Chumash? forget the fancy stuff what does that verse mean? What, is, what does it mean? Right? And he enoyed you and starved you Rav and starved you and fed you the man. Several interpretations suggest themselves, but what, what's the... Con- Let me ask you, ask you I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, you know, telegraph the, the, the question more, more, more pointedly. What is the connection between the first two words there, and the third clause, and fed you the man? That's exactly my question, and this is exactly the, parsha, the Parshan's question. What do you... I think one way of reading it which as, as some people do read it is first God enoys you and starves you in the desert you have no food you're wandering the Eretz Lozirua a place without abundance the anti-Egypt if you will which is also the anti-God Adem so that's for another time 
a place with, where we don't have springs and trees and seven species of the lovely ant that I'm visual, of course, most of you are. And you're wandering around and you get hungry and therefore you're starving. That's the Inori. This is what made. That's the Inori. The Inori experience of hunger. Remind you of Kipper on the Ela time? The, the experience of hunger. The antidote, the response, right? The, the, the response of God, the kindness, the grace of God in response is here's the here's the, the man which you do not know, your father didn't know, and I imagine this reading the not knowing part is look how gracious, look how miraculous this man is. God responds by giving you food, and you know you're going to No one knows such things. What is this food? But God sends you left on my and you call them Psalms, right? Ancient angelic food. Right? The food of the light. And you respond. And therefore, now you're no longer hungry. And this is in order to teach you that it's not really on the bread food that you live, but rather on the word of God that you live. This is how it's the one we're reading verses here. However, Chazal, Chazal, I should say, but some of Chazal, we did it a different way. In the Gemara and Yuma, I really want to look at this passage more in depth next week. The Gemara in Yuma, uh, the Gemara in the eighth chapter, when talking about our Indian, had a law. Like when I taught it here a couple years ago in the Gemara it took us like a week to learn it, I think, two weeks, I don't remember. Um, a long Agadah, a long narrative, uh, not only a story, but like a string, an association, a matrix, a uh, meditation on the man and the Slav, the, 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 the foul and on the desert experience, and on Egypt, and on oppression, and on sexuality, and on denial. Very interesting to me, don't me. And within there, there are two interpretations of what it means to say, I am God, I am that God, I feel that man, that he with you, and starved you, and fed you the man. Both those interpretations assume that actually, as Sir says very well, the third clause that you felt that fed you the man is a continuation of the first two. God enoyed you. How? By starving you. How did he kind of starve you? He gave you the mind. Well, that's a paradox. He starved you by feeding you? So there's two interpretations in the Gemara there. Uh, I think it's from Amir Asi, I forget right now. Uh, two of them are in two communist stages. One says, and one says, we're not sure who said which. The tradition doesn't know. But one says, you know what the enoy of the man is? The inner of the man is a no domain misha yishlo patasalo and misha in lo patasalo. It is one who has bread that is a vinegar. Now I guess it's a Hebrew idiom. One who has bread in his basket, patasalo, patasalo. That's a different experience than one who doesn't have bread in his basket. That's patasalo usually means just someone who has like a bank account, someone who has a pantry, a food pantry, someone who has lots of food, so not living meal to meal, day to day.
What I want to explain next week is that part of what the Gemara is doing, I'll just tell you now, is if you don't come, if you want to come here more, you can come, right? Someone told me that the difference between reading a, a introduction conclusion of a book, as opposed to reading the whole book, is do you want to know what the argument is? Or do you want to be able to evaluate it? So one of the argument is just read the introduction conclusion, and then you're done. If you want to be able to evaluate it, you have to read the data, you have to read the argument in between. So here's the argument, which is that part of Chazal's understanding, that Gemara, that Gemara's understanding of the Yom Kippur, is that they're framing Yom Kippur as a desert experience. They're saying when you are in Kippur, in Kippur, you put yourself out of Egypt before the land, and you live the Eretz Lozirah, left the Tatarai, and you follow God in that situation. Can you live with utter vulnerability, utter dependence? Can you, in that experience, utter vulnerability, utter dependence, can you somehow, for a video, you find <laughs> Can you find yourself? Can you repent? Can you grow? What happens when you're put in that experience? Then you say, Yo, in the desert. Can you find Torah? Remind you that for some age, that man, you have to the second the cloak come. Can you find out in that I think that's one rabbinic understanding. I, I, I haven't heard others say this, but it's my claim is that one rabbinic understanding of Yom Kippur is that you're back in the desert. You're back in the desert. Every year we go back to the desert. What happens when you're there? What happens when you're there? Is this Gemara? I'm sorry. This Gemara, we'll come to it next week. Yoma. Yoma, Yoma is the same book. The day. Yoma is a tractate about Yom Kippur. Most of it is about the Abodah, the temple stuff. Temples, after the cult of worship, etc. But uh, chapter eight is about the, you know, the Inuit and talking about the Yeah. Sukkot is also that experience right here. Yeah. So many things are about the desert. Sukkot also, right? It makes sense. Kippur Sukkot, right? Sukkot is in part about, is in part about the booths, etc. Sukkot also maybe about the Mikdash. Another thing people talk about about the series of Sukkot. Uh, but yeah, many things I think Yeah, what do you mean by the way? I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Erica. Erica. Um, I, <laughs> so, um, it seems to me also the Yom Kippur is, you know, talking about the Ayahu piece of it, and then there's a piece of it who's not eating and drinking, or we're supposed to be like the angels, and wearing your kittel, which is what you do when you're wearing your kittel in the grave as well. And it seems to me like it's a rehearsal for our own not. So in other words, it's something that we're never going to experience, which is being in the veil of our thoughts. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that's the day when we do. And it's, so it's like that mourning and repentance, but also, you know, unbelievable freedom and, you know, being shot being released. So, great. I think it's sort of that day of experiencing what you know, because we can't experience our own death. I mean, we can't experience anything after our own death. In terms of our own consciousness. I understand. So maybe that's the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what Erica says is really interesting. So, I think there's several framings, right? One framing we've put together so far is to say the desert experience. So, that's one understanding of what's happening. Another understanding is that it is a quasi moment experience um, where we are uh, experiencing uh, our own death. Um, and we'll come to that actually in just a moment. Um, whether that's for the sake of um, whether that's for the sake of uh, uh, urging us to see past our own mortality, right? um, or whether that's for the sake of associatively removing ourselves from physicality, depends. Sources, there's different sources going different ways. But um, I don't know what you said with the kittel, for example, because 
Is it more about your dad? Is it more about, more about that you're an angel? Is it more about that we're all wearing the same thing? Is it more that we're all priests? Is it more that we're all pure? I think these are all possibilities. I think you're going to be thinking about what, what, that, what that's about. Yeah. I was also thinking about, like, interesting the comparison of the contrast between the first two things, like sad morning and also joy, you know, that, like the first thing that popped up to you was um, Pesach, because that's what we're doing with Pesach, and we're being cut by the, that's what is the contrast between the first slaves and morning and yet we're so Pesach also has what I'm saying, remembering, calling the Enoid. The suffering, right, and at the same time the joy. And yeah, yeah. And that makes it both confusing and rich, of course, right? And uh, confusing and rich. And by the way, I'll just note that like, different liturgical moments in the course of the day, of course, as you probably know, listening to God's what I, I go to, there's a moment of like, you know, you know, a person is like a leaf of this, you know, it's a dust in the wind, as Kansas song goes, you know, and, uh, you know, we are, we are, we are finite and uh, ephemeral and, and then mortal, and then, you know, uh, you know, the times where we talk about how glorious we are, Mario uh, and how glorious we are, and, you know, it's actually, and then you, by the way, I sometimes have led these services, it's very difficult, I'll tell you for myself, and there's the congregation. <coughs> To bounce back and forth, I, I actually haven't yet figured out how to do it properly for myself, which is the following, which is both the whole lot of down, which is very interesting, and then we have Mari Kohen, who's done it successfully, and where I dive in, Mari Kohen, and then, oh by the way, our stages were killed by the Romans, etc. Well, you know, and, and, and the show, you know, not show but the, you know, etc. So, yeah, it's complicated, and, um, um, and each prayer may have a different tone to it, by the way. I mean, still have a lot to say about this. But, yeah, I appreciate that point. And I think that, you know, many different people will, part, will connect in different parts of the day. Um, so, there are morning, I just wanted to, to, to make sure that I got this across, though, that, that when I say there's morning practice in Kippur, I don't think that there's din of a very in Kippur, that there's actually morning in Kippur. I mean, to say was that, I actually need to say that I have that, but actually, there are indications that there's no morning in Yom Kippur, no morning in practice, which quack like morning, that smell like the smack of morning in practice. That's because, you know, there's certain commonalities, which we have to do with both them confronting mortality, for example. Right? Why is it lay on the ground? Why is it that we sit low on the ground and not able Why do we return to the bed? Why do we put ashes on our head? So some people's understanding of that is that you are imitating the dead. You are associating yourself with the disease. Um, that's how some people understand it. My point is being that um, that uh, that when you associate with the disease, you're confronting your mortality, and that confronting mortality may have right the connection of before. Doesn't mean that we're mourning the said. Doesn't mean that we're mid that veil, right? Um, and I mean I think that's actually a really good segue for the following. But I do have to just I forgot my other very first Okay. So I don't think I made any people who are coming, and I don't think you're paper, so maybe I'll ask. I don't know when you're here, maybe I'll ask you to share. And here you go. So this is a packet, and we're not going to go through all of it, but I'll tell you what you have here. And I tend to like to give some time to some extra sources, and uh, so I can look at it later on. 
But um, yeah, I'm actually doing it now. So, and by the way, I think we're trying Hebrew because of uh, time, but I would obviously love to hear it. So uh, I'm trying to be on your own. But what you have here is the first several pages um, are a halach midrash called the Sikra, the Kra'anim, halach midrash on Leviticus, where the rabbis talk about the Inuyin, the afflictions of the poor, and where they come from, etc. And then you have a passage from the Talmud where I tried to bracket out some very interesting Hanaitic sources, all the brackets, etc. So we're not going to do this right now, maybe I'll just pull this out again next week, and if not, then anyway. But I think for now, given the fact that we're sort of short on time a little bit, um, I want to just focus on the end where it's, it looks, the page looks like this. The end of the packet. Um, and this is, um, I have here three responses which I found to be really interesting. Um, about Yom Kippur, about some interesting practices. Let's look, looking at the first one, for example, I want to go back to what I said about, oh, I said in the 60 minutes from now, about 60 minutes ago, we said that the elite of the Nashua Teichem, that the Enoi commandments, said that the Enoi is conjugated in the positive, reminding you, conjugated is a positive imperative verb, you shall do the following. Um, and yet, in the rabbinic tradition, halakor, halakhet, Requirements are self-denial, that is abstinence, thou shalt not, do not eat, do not drink, do not anoint, bathe, wear leather shoes, and engage in sexual relationships, um, rather than the positive. So the so the comma gets into discussion, the comma actually raises the possibility, um, and I can have it in a packet, but we won't go into it. I want to show it to you right now inside, but if you want later on, I'll show you inside. The Talmud says, maybe you would have thought that when it says Enoi, Kippur, you know, one can or one should, depends on how you read it, Yachol, that one should sit in the sun. Right? Maybe one should sit in the sun, um, on the hot sun in Yom Kippur. Right? Maybe um, to basically afflict oneself, uh, afflict oneself um, that way, or in the cold. In order that one should feel the sar, the pain. The Talmud says, no, remember that Enoi is juxtaposed with the Malacha. We said this at the very beginning. Remember that Enoi, the commandment to afflict yourself, is juxtaposed with the commandment of Anishan not to Malacha, just like the commandment not to do Malacha, not to do, engage in work or creative labor, um, is passive, Sheva al Pasha, thou shalt not, so to this also thou shalt not. And it goes on about that at length. So the point is that the tradition, like the, the Gemara, raises the possibility of proactive, what we call kumbase, get up and do mitzvot, proactively afflicting yourself or oppressing yourself or, you know, engaging in enoi, um, and that the, the tradition rejects that possibility. And says, that, uh, no, actually, it's akin to malacha. Don't do malacha, don't do things. So in other words, the fact that possibility of actually seeking out in order to raise and reject it. Now, sometimes when the, the sages do this, we actually have evidence, in some cases, that they're responding not only to a hypothetical, theoretical, you know, alternate practice, but actually a known alternate practice. Sometimes we, have that, sometimes we do know we do have that sense of other sources around the period. Sometimes we think, oh, what they're doing is responding to you know, what this sect, which we found in the Dead Sea seems to be doing, or the Sadducees, the, the, uh, the or whatnot, you know, what other people are doing, and they're saying, no, we don't do that. Not always, sometimes. Here, while I don't know of a passage that indicates that other Jews, that the 
time were sitting in the sun or the cold on Kippur to afflict themselves, and the rabbis are saying, no, we don't do that. We have, throughout time, have indications of Jews. We have, of course, of the falashas, the yoga of Karaites, um, and also rabbinic Jews, yet engaging in positive afflictions. So, just some examples, just a bunch of examples. The, we have uh, reports of Karaites um, standing all standing all day, right? Not and maybe all night as well. Standing, not sitting. They're standing and not sitting. Apparently, and this is kind of the angels. I don't know, but it sounds like because they're looking, they're not giving themselves the comfort of sitting, okay? Um, not sleeping. So I remind you, there's there is a custom, right, among uh, rabbinic Jews, right, for some to stay up all night and not sleep on Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah also not take a nap, but to not sleep on Yom Kippur night. Actually, some people would learn, you know, right, to, to learn, uh, to learn, to learn, uh, you know, to get to their salvation, to stay up all night, and learn to cook, and to the store, and stay up all night. But maybe stay up all night. Would that, what, uh, stay, stay up all night? Others, and I, I'm not sure, I think, I think I didn't bring it in, but I actually have a good image. What? Stay up all night in the morning? I personally find yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe you wouldn't find it. I get tired at some point. But, uh, but uh, others you may know. Um, but you have to switch in on Chibur. In Akinami, no, no, right. No, I'm not in the month of Sikhana. It's a good point, right? Also, that's why it's like not. When I'm, no, I'm not saying that people can save all night learning and their experience of affliction. What I'm about to claim, though, is a set of practices which you could argue you know, are somehow partaking of this positive enjoyment. Or, here's one which is rather indisputable, which is the practice of um, um, you know, flailing, clogging, settling on Arab Yom Kippur. And we actually have uh, you know, images of this, of people in, in synagogues in uh, earlier times, also today, I'm not where I go, but I'm sure it happens, right? Where people engage in, uh, in Malkos, right? They guess they, they, people ceremoniously or not, right? Like little you know, soft patches or, you know, real lashes in these are examples of, even within the rabbinic tradition, people engaged in activities which are positive, as to say, like proactive, Iduian. Uh, and what I would argue is that even though the tradition, like the philosophy tradition, has pushed away, and we're going to end this in a few moments, but the tradition has pushed away from um, positive, kumbahase, proactive, Iduian, it never really dies. These things never really die. And it survives. Um, in, in various uh, manifestations, even again in the halakhic rabbinic tradition, um, through several customs. And with that, I want to just turn to a really interesting one um, on page one of the Shemit Panerji. This is the response, uh, response to Siach and Yitzchak, um, Yeri and uh, Hosek, Yair and Weiss. And he, I will read it in such a sake of time, I'm going to read it in the sake of time, do you mind? And regarding the customs on page one, it says page one. It says regarding the customs Party. Listen to this custom, and I'm not going to go, I think mean, anyone knows this custom. Give me a little, because I, I don't know. Go ahead. Uh, regarding the custom of the Sardin to sit at the table for the behold, I have heard from reliable sources that the following of the custom of our breakfast the Sardin made in Turkey. Before the onset of the holiday, they set the table full of delicacies oh. and beautiful. Beautiful, great, worthy fruits. I translated it, so if you don't like the translation, it's my fault. Go on. On the holiday itself, I imagine for the Muslim service, or perhaps afterwards, they leave the synagogue and return home for a bit, and look at the table, and indeed stare at it. Stare at it, that's my palace, you can see. And they say, this is the day about which God commanded that one must afflict his soul, that is, it is Yom Kippur. We thus withhold ourselves from eating and drinking. 
They then returned to the synagogue and renewed the prayers. This was remarkably wondrous to me. How is it that they do not worry lest the evil inclination overpower us on them? Heaven forfend, causing him to extend his hand and take tea. This is Rabbinic idiom, but he's, he's saying, have this, I heard this custom of, the, of our brethren in Turkey where they set tables for by the way, this is for temptation, and they stare at it, and then they say, you know, this is the day where we enjoy yourself. So what I want to point out, that he's going to go on and uh, talk about something about it. What I want to point out is that um, what they're doing is they're not eating and drinking, right? It's passive, but they're positively, they're, they're proactively engaging in passive activity. This says positive, right, proactively, kumbasegish, you can engage in not eating and not drinking. They stick it in their face, they set the table, and then they don't eat. And by the way, there's an additional reference to this, I think, which is, and really this next week, which is that it's kind of like they're setting a table for what we call in, you know, in English, for Yantin. So setting a holiday table. And that's very interesting as well. Because we talked about, you know, it's, you know, your kid birthday in the morning, and I tried to push away from that a bit, but I, right, the, the rabbi pushed away from that a little bit, sources which indicate that actually, just the opposite. There's actually a mitzvah of simcha on Yom Tov. There's actually a mitzvah of joy on Yom Tov. Um, sorry, on Yom Kippur. Like Yom Tov. There's a mitzvah, it's almost like there's a mitzvah of eating Yom Kippur. Stop saying you can't eat. And thus, you may know of the Allah of Midrash, it says on the ninth, on the ninth of the month, Yom Kippur is a town, right? May Erev al Erev, you shall afflict your souls. And we say, Wait, was the fast on the ninth also? And we say, all those who eat and drink on the ninth, if they fasted on the tenth. And there's a lot of literature in the video. Same talk about this. What do you mean by that? Whoever eats and drinks on the ninth is if they, is if they fast on the tenth. How so? Why would we want you to eat and drink on the ninth? Well, other health professionals say that the ninth, you mean the ninth? Oh, it means we're supposed to extend Yom Kippur into the ninth. Started early. We call it the the Shabbos early, so really the source take Yom Kippur in early, and Maimonides thinks it's only Yom Kippur, which has that mitzvah we call Sefeh. Adding on to Yom Kippur, we're actually in Shemitah now, by the way, because we didn't have Yom Kippur in the year yet, but there's a mitzvah that we have to call Sefeh Shemitah, which is in seven sabbatical year, uh, you just start 30 days early, so we're in Elul now, which means we're actually in some of the, lo- some of, some of the laws of Shemitah, um, I spoke among the medievals about which laws of Shemitah you start already, but it doesn't matter, the point is Sefeh Shemitah, right? That's right. Both have that don't do the cessation, extend the shots exactly. And actually, I'll tell you after it's actually a Karishma Katir Tishbot, right? It's taken from there. Anyway, so, um, so some addition, some plus addition have it, if you have it in your name, is, you know, take you know, the Kippur in early. Right? Take the Kippur in early, which is. By the way, what we do is we start everything early, right? Call the day, stop the day, and then so starting early. We ritualize, we start early. But uh, others have even drink a lot on the ninth day. So what's that about? And maybe we'll come to this, but you know, maybe it's partly about you know, it's partly about um, experiencing the joy of the kipper. You can't feel it in kipper because everyone's thinking you're not looking kipper. So you're gonna have another meal. Okay, have it on the ninth. There's something to that. But I just want to point out, it's also a way of positively engaging in the Mitzvot of Yom Kippur. Right? And actually, some sources say, you know, why do you drink a lot on the ninth? So you may know this, like this is must look at. Some say you drink a lot on the ninth to make your fast easier. And other sources, Rashi or Sabama, or other sources say, eat even drink a lot on the ninth so that, you probably know it's like, my, my medically, so that you're, you're used to eating, it makes your fast harder. 
You know, you're going to stomach can expand, oh, that's true enough, but that's what my bones told it. Your stomach expands and it makes the fat harder. So that reading of it makes the fat harder, what's that about? What's that about is, let's positively engage, partly about, let's positively engage in ignore. Okay, so what I'm arguing is that all of those and this, that the tape, staring at what, where is the thing, right? Well, what they're doing in part is, they're basically saying, take this with a grain of salt, they're looking at the Pasuk, it says, you shall positively, so, you shall practice, engage in self-denial, practice self-denial. So, practice not doing it. Well, you know, that's a head. Which way is it? So they're saying, okay, let's head it a little more. So we will literally stare at the food and then, and then not, not engage in engaging eating it. And he goes on to say, and his point here is like, I don't get it. Where's that coming from? Like, all you're doing is tempting someone to eat. Like, you're not actually accomplishing anything. Right? To be clear, I'm not claiming that, like, they read the Hasuk, saw it conjugated as an imperative, and said, oh, that's a table. I see that in the air, we're seeing all these sort of practices popping up of positive, kumba'ase, positive engagements in Inoi, which, you know, the Gemara said, maybe you should positively engage and push back again. He said, no, but things like this don't really die. It's not how it works. And he goes on to say that we had this, he saw a biography of a holy rabbi who also, he came after Kondidre, who was sat by a table set with all sorts of dishes. And he would say, Master, the universe, you know that I would fulfill, fulfill a commandment of celebrating the Sabbath, meaning Yom Kippur, with eating, I'm sorry, this is Yom Kippur on the Sabbath, excuse me, important, but Shabbat Shabbat With eating and drinking, however, since you commanded, I'm turning the page, that we have to afflict ourselves, I cannot fulfill the charge of celebrating the Sabbath. So it's very interesting, this custom he has on Shabbos, Yom Kippur, Shabbat Shabbat Shabbat, Yom Kippur, which is on a Sabbath, he would set the table for Shabbos, and then say, I wish I could eat and drink for Shabbos, but I can't because Yom Kippur. But lo and behold, even this Hosek says, oh, these things look similar. They're staring at a table and probably not eating. There's a lot more on these pages and we'll come back to next week. But I just want to summarize by saying that we looked today a little bit about what the noise might be in, in, in Tanakh, and we tried to decode it a little bit. And there are actually arbitrations that in some cases it's associated with stone, with fasting, with anointing, not, not anointing, and not uh, bathing, and not washing, and various sort of contours. But um, we sort of played out what it might mean, and association especially with the desert. I want to come back to next week. That's my main takeaway, I think, of my own to the association and the keeper of the desert experience about the man. That would definitely hopefully talk about the next week or the week after. Um, and, but noting already that the rabbinic tradition uh, has these lists of five or six, six things that one cannot do, uh, which sort of look like Abhi Lu, but maybe are not Abhi Lu, we have concluded today by noting that the Elite and Ashtekhem, Ta'adu, are all positively conjugated verbs, and the tradition actually talks about not doing in the lowercase tradition, if you will, I don't know which one's lowercase, which one's upper T, but the customs of the Jewish people pop up the positive, right, the, the, form, the, the, the go forward and do, and um, whatever, whatever reasons, because you know, ideas like this don't die, right, they can't, they can't scan them out, they will pop up again, maybe reflective of a psychological impulse, a religious impulse to engage in sort of, you know, proactively seeking, maybe it's about other things as well, but um, it's certainly uh, alive and kicking and you're not going anywhere. So uh, I don't know if we'll, we'll pause here. You have a final question or comment? Or? I, just, I just want to say really quick, there's been a class last night um, talking about Shuvah, yeah. and there were sources that talk about the process of doing Shuvah is not really uh, accomplished until you've actually confronted the sin with the original mindset that you had and then, and then rejected it. So a lot of these talk about it, right. Right, so that um, sinning you know, sexual relations with a woman and you have to go back and see her in the exact same situation you were in and reject her. But not like go to that meeting 
with the mindset that you're going to do that. You actually go to the meeting as if you just don't want it. Right. With the same passion that you initially had, right. you meet her in the exact same situation. And you're positively not doing it. And then, you're, then you're, and then, right, and then Yeshua is actually kind of like in that moment. Right. And right. it's just reminded me of it's, it's a very interesting association you're mm-hmm. I don't know that Mani's actually means, probably speaking, among people who said, should I do this? It was a different sort. Yeah, okay. I have to have to see it then. Okay, so yeah. He's drawing to the verses in Africa mode, and it has the Eastern Africa There's a kayak there. Mm-hmm. There's the Inuit, and there's the Lachater, or and then there's the Inuit. So in a way, it was the whole other thing. Yeah. You know, that, that, that the purpose of the Inuit is connected to the Atonement, which is what she made. Yeah, very, yeah. And maybe the fact that the Lachater, mm-hmm.